0: Good morning. You all remember the book of John? We, uh, we were, we, last September we started uh, going through the entire book of John. We took a break uh, earlier this year to go through our course series and we ended up spending six weeks on that and then didn't leave John entirely as we spent the last three Sundays just on John fourteen six alone. But uh, today we're jumping back in right where we left off. We finished Chapter six, nine Sundays ago, I believe, and so today we're jumping in right at the start of chapter seven. And so if you have your Bibles, please keep them open there. Uh, We want you to be able to follow along. I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer, so let's pray. Father, we thank you just for uh, everyone's presence here this morning. God, we thank you just for the encouragement of seeing faces and people out there who've taken the time out of their lives to give this hour to you. God, to to just be here among your people, to hear your word taught and spoken, and so we pray that you will bless that decision, Father. Um, We know that that you haven't brought them here by accident, so that over these next few moments you will do the exact work you intended to do in their lives and in their hearts today, and we pray that you'll receive all the glory from it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start this morning by telling you something you should all already know. But life on earth can be really hard. That's well, not profound, is that's, that's simply a no-brainer, but I think it needs to be said for a couple reasons. Number one, if, if you listen to some Christian pastors and speakers, and they, they'll make it sound like everything that God has for you is to bless you here with ease and comfort and health and prosperity. And on top of that, they'll go as far as saying if your life is absent of those things, then it's just because you don't have enough faith, and that's all junk and garbage, Because the Bible is perfectly clear, life here is hard, right? And The Bible is also clear that God has purchased for you an endless future in heaven that includes more blessings than you can imagine, and that can be yours by faith, but the Bible explicitly tells you again and again and again that life here on earth can be difficult. And the second reason that I think it needs to be said today is is where we are in the calendar. Last week we celebrated Easter, and so in celebrating Easter, we celebrated the hope of the resurrection. Now, we celebrated the awesome power of Jesus over the grave. We celebrated all that Jesus bought for us in the cross and, and what is to come for us in Christ because of the empty tomb. And all of it was big, and all of it was worshipful, and all of it was victorious, and rightfully so. But today we're jumping back into our study in the book of John where we left off several weeks ago. And the book of John tells us a lot about Jesus' life here on earth. And what I want you to see today is that as we go throughout this book, in spite of his power, in spite of Jesus' identity and eventual victory, the life on earth for Jesus was really, really hard. And this is actually theologically very significant. The book of Hebrews picks up on this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told this about Jesus. It says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That verse is telling you that there's nothing that you face that Jesus did not face. So our God does not approach us in sympathy alone, but in empathy, that no matter what it is we're going through, Jesus can look at us and say, I know, child, I know. And that's incredibly important because it, it marks another distinct difference between Jesus and other religions, where other religions always have this idea of the divinity, and the divine is always far off, it's always removed, it's always distant, and the job of the Godhead is to watch and observe humans and see if we somehow meet his standards, But in Jesus Christ, we have the visible image of the invisible God. We have the word who has become flesh, who became a man in order to face what we face, in order to live the sinless life that you and I never have, in order to die in our place, in order to to live again so that we might live in him. And he did all that to establish with us a personal, intimate relationship with each of us who believe in him so that the end result is this, that whenever you have a really good day, right, whenever you accomplish something really cool, you reach a milestone you've worked on for a while, Jesus Christ actually celebrates it with you. Or whenever the the wind is taken out of your sails or you face something painful or tragic or you're scared or overwhelmed, Jesus comes alongside you and says, I know, I've been there, I'm sorry. And it doesn't necessarily jump off the page to you, but a closer look at the context of John chapter 7, it's easy to see that Jesus has adversity coming at him from every direction. Right, the stress has just come in buckets. His, his adversaries are lining up. It's all stacking up against him in this chapter. And a lot of times what we do is when we read in the Bible how Jesus handled really difficult situations, we say, well, of course he handled it well. He's Jesus. I'm not him. And yeah, that's true. You're not Jesus. Please never forget that. But it's also true, the Bible tells us, that he faced every temptation that we faced, that he walked in our shoes. He went through the same struggles, and so I think it would be awful wise of us to study how he faced those things and learn from him. So let's look at the start of John 7, as John sets the scene for us in this chapter. John chapter 7 and verse 1, where Logan read for you, says this, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea. Because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, if you can remember all the way back in John chapter 1, it was September when we were looking at it, right? When John starts his book, early on he tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own rejected him. This is John foreshadowing and telling us that Jesus came first to the Jewish people. He was born in the line of David as a Jewish man, only the Jews rejected him as Messiah. They rejected him as a spiritual authority. They rejected him as Savior and Lord. And so what's happening in the book of John, starting in about in chapter 5 and on through the end, what, what we're watching that rejection unfold. And at the start of John chapter 6, Jesus has a lot of disciples. Now, John never tells us the number, right? But in his language, he infers that it was way more than the original 12 that we often think about. And in addition to that, large crowds were literally chasing after him, following him everywhere we went. And so in John 6, Jesus is the it thing in Judea. He's getting all the attention. He's getting all the headlines. He's getting all the followers. He wasn't looking for any of that, but he was getting it, right? And what Jesus did in John chapter 6 was he gave some of his hardest teachings. He didn't hold back at all. And at the end of John 6, the crowds turned on him. And then they all left him. And at the end of John 6, we read that almost all of his disciples, except for the original 12, deserted him. They stopped following him. And then when the 12 say, guess what we're still going to say, Jesus tells them, yeah, I know. And I know that one of you are going to betray me. So they're not exactly a bedrock of comfort and assurance. Now, on top of that, the Jewish leaders have had enough. He's taken enough of their steam. He's criticized them too many times. He's, He's not playing along with them. And so it's just time to get rid of him. And so they're actively plotting and planning to kill him. And then, as if they're just icing on the cake, right? Here in John 7, his brothers pile on. Now, what is it about family that, they can, that gives them so much power over us? Like, family can be an incredible source of strength and an incredible source of encouragement. And family can also be an incredible source of draining and despair, can't they? And here in John 7, sensing that Jesus is down, his, brothers, his half-brothers just pile on. Because Jesus had been spending his time in Galilee, which is out in the wilderness, out in the smaller, less populated towns where less people are, and he'd done so because he knew they were, they were trying to kill him. He knew it wasn't his time to die yet. But his brothers take this information. They use this to mock him, and so they come to him in John 7, and they say, what the heck are you doing out here in no man's land? Right? Why don't you go to Judea? Go to the festival. Go do some miracles there, because that's where all the crowds are. That's where all the people are. And there you can gain all these followers you lost because no one, they say, no one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. And John comes around and tells us that his brothers did this because they did not believe in him. Now, you Bible students know that changes after the resurrection, doesn't it? But for now, in John 7, they're, they're mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're kicking him when he's down. Stop hiding already. Just go show off. Show the world how great you are if you're really that great. What you're you're doing is a terrible strategy. Even in their mocking advice, they're looking at things merely from a human perspective. They assumed that Jesus' motivation for all that he'd done was his own vanity and pride. They're assuming that that what Jesus wanted was to be famous, was to be known, was to be followed. And why did they assume this? Because that's what their motivations would have been. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 6. Look what he tells them. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. That's a strong statement, by the way. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus, responding to his brothers, begins to unpack the differences between he and his brothers and really the differences between he and every other human being in that day. And the first difference that he points out is the way that they look at time. It's their perspective on schedule and planning. And the problem that Jesus had with the way his brothers saw time is that they saw it as their time and not God's. And so he points out, for you, right, for them, since it's all their time, any time they wanted to go to festival would be fine. There's no risk for them. There's no concern. There's no intentionality, right? They could do as they please with really little to no thought given to it at all. And Jesus is telling them, I simply don't look at time that way. He said, I don't have the freedom to be really flippant about my schedule. Because I have a purpose that you don't know of. I see things that you don't see. I know things that you don't know, brothers. And I'm telling you, it's not my time to go. And the second difference that Jesus points out between he and his brothers is the way that the world views them. Right? That they they can, his brothers can mock and laugh and ridicule all they want but there is a reason that no one's leaving their brother his brothers there's a reason that no one is criticizing his brothers there's a reason that no one is threatening his brothers or wanting to kill his brothers and the reason is they're not a threat not even the slightest the reason that the world cannot hate them is because they are of this world they belong to it And one of the themes that runs all throughout John is that Jesus is not of this world, he does not belong to this world, and he will not remain in this world. He came from the Father, he will accomplish the Father's purposes, and then he will return to the Father. But in coming, John tells us, he was the light of the world. And one of the things that light does is it exposes what is hidden in the darkness So before Jesus came along, the entire structure, the religious structure of that day of Judaism was built on these outer displays of piety in religion. It simply didn't matter why you did anything. All that mattered was that you followed this list or checked off that sacrifice or wore this robe or took these steps. Then you were pious and you were respected and you were good. And then the light came to the darkness. And Jesus began to peel back the curtain and expose the inauthenticity of their worship. He revealed the frauds to be frauds. Because he took the focus off of what you do and he set it squarely on why you do it. He took the entire Old Testament law and he narrowed it down to two commands. The entire law, all the Old Testament hangs on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and then love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you worship God, if you love God first and foremost, and if your motivation is to place others above yourself and deal with them in grace and love, it no longer matters what you do at all because it's guaranteed to be good. It's guaranteed to be approved by God. And listen to a culture that had built its foundation On outer appearances and the observing of rules, this was incredibly frustrating. Because those who were thought of as awesome and on point spiritually, Jesus was revealing them to have missed the mark entirely. And that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was those who they were labeled as outcasts, those who were considered the worst of sinners, when they showed remorse and brokenness in their hearts for their sins, Jesus declared them as closer to the kingdom of God than the religious and the pious, and it just ticked them off. And they hated him for it. And his brothers had no such worries. See, they weren't the light of the world. They weren't exposing any evils of the world. They they were taking part in them as was the rest of humanity. So he tells them, go on, bros, just go. You have no worries. Go with your own selfish motivations. Go with little to no gain. But I'm going to wait until the proper time. And so he stays back for a few days before he goes. This is the second time in the book of John that one of his family members asked Jesus to do something. You remember the first? It was his mother at the wedding in Canaan, John chapter 2. Now it's his brothers in John 7. And both times, Jesus eventually sort of did what they requested, but he didn't do it as they requested it. And both times that he didn't follow their exact request, the reason he gave them is that it's just not my time yet. And what he was telling his family was this, that his devotion is first and foremost with his father. That the plans that God the Father had for Jesus trumped any wishes of his family, which, by the way, is what we're called to as followers of Christ. You could have the greatest family in the world, but they're not Jesus. And he's king. And so his will needs to prevail in your life. So Jesus waits a bit, and then he heads to Judea, to the festival. And John sets the scene for us in Judea while people are waiting. Look at verse verse 11 in John chapter 7. John writes, Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there's widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So in Judea, right, around the festival, everyone's looking for him. Everyone's wondering if he's going to show up. Everyone's wondering if he's going to come and dominate the festival. And before he even makes an appearance, he's the talk of the entire town because the leaders are looking everywhere for him. Remember, they're looking for a way to kill him. Others, they are whispering about him, and they're talking about him in really positive ways, saying that he's he's a good man that we should listen to. Others place a very serious charge in him, saying that he deceives the people. Now, that charge goes beyond just being a liar, by the way. Remember, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And so he's a teacher who speaks on the things of God. To be labeled and charged as a deceiver meant that he was a very dangerous person. Because to deceive people about God, the Jews believed you were leading people into being cursed by God. And so if Jesus was really a deceiver, the best and most righteous thing to do is to kill him. So these are the whispers going on around him and halfway through the festival having somehow arrived in secret. Jesus gets the green light from his father. It's time. It's time to teach the truth. So look at verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, "How did this man get such learning without having been taught?" Now, don't miss where he went. It says, Jesus headed up to the temple courts and out in the open. This is where the biggest crowds would be. Way public, out in the open, begins to teach the people. How's that for guts? He knows the religious leaders are trying to kill him. He knows everyone in Jerusalem is divided about him. Many think that he's a deceiver and worthy of death. He knows that, that all the people who walked away and left him angry in John 6 will be there for the festival. He knows his brothers who have mocked him are there for the festival and yet he goes and he teaches out in the open where anyone can hear and the Jews there who heard him were amazed. Because here's this man who didn't go to their schools, who didn't train with their Pharisees, who didn't seem to have any educational background at all and he's teaching the scriptures in a way that they've never heard before. He has such power and authority and command of the scriptures. It's almost like he wrote them. You're supposed to laugh there because he did write them, all right? Now, listen, have you ever sat through a sermon that just gripped you? Have you ever sat through a sermon that's like you were frozen in your seat, it had your full attention, and your heart is burning inside of you? Well, you go to church here, so no, you haven't. That's a silly question, all right? But can you imagine for a second what that would be like? Can you imagine for a second what it would feel like to listen to Jesus preach? I mean, your heart would burst out of your chest. You would hang on to every word. In Acts, we read about a time where Paul preached way too long, and this guy falls asleep, and then he falls out of a window. Right, that, that verse gives me comfort, okay? That didn't happen with Jesus. Not once. Throughout the Gospels, we read the reaction to the crowds of Jesus' teaching. Some, some got really angry with him. Others got very passionate. Others were amazed in it all. Some were broken and repentant. Some were celebratory and excited. But there was no indifference. There was no boredom and there was no apathy. Because the word had become flesh and then was unpacking the word. I can't imagine. And the Jews just couldn't figure it out. How is this possible? And so Jesus helps them understand. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own comes from the one who sent me. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Get this, Jesus' answer is basically this, I was sent. You wanna know the secret to all my power? I was sent. And that's not only his answer to this question of where he was trained, it's his answer to every question. What's his answer to those who deserted him in John 6? What's his answer to his brothers who mocked him? What's his answer to the world who hates him? I was sent here. What is his answer to those who label him as a deceiver? What's his answer to the piling up of stress, to the collection of burdens, to the feeling of overwhelm? What's his answer to everyone who's questioning him, to all his enemies lining up? His answer is, I was sent. Because living as one who has been sent changes everything. He starts by telling them, I don't need your schools, I don't need your teachers, I don't need your education. Because I was sent by my father, and so I pass on to you what I receive from him. He gives me the words to say. He guides what I teach, and what I say is truth because it comes from him who is truth. And then he throws out a challenge, especially to all who have been calling him a deceiver. He says, you want to find out if what I teach is true and from God? Here's what you need to do. Do what I say. Like, go ahead follow God's will. Why don't you put into practice what I teach and see if I'm not legit? You know, in all the years I've been in ministry, not one time have I met with someone and the conversation went like this, where someone said, well, Brett, I just decided I was going to do exactly what Jesus told me to do, and boy, do I regret it. I mean, I, I couldn't have went worse. I've never had that discussion once. I've never once looked back at a decision in my life where I've decided to do exactly what Jesus told me to do, and then been later like, man, that was the wrong way to go. This is Jesus saying, Try me. You'll see if I'm legit. Why don't you put into practice what I teach, and you'll see. You'll learn that my teaching comes directly from God. I love the self-assurance that Jesus has. I love the confidence that He has in the truths that He has received from the Father. And then in verse eighteen, He shows us the biggest difference between living as one sent and living as everyone else. Look at verse eighteen. Jesus tells them, "Whoever speaks on their own." does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Now, the context here is that Jesus is speaking about his teaching because that's what they had wondered about, but it reveals for us a life-shaping motivation that Jesus had. Jesus knows. He knew all along that he was sent to earth by God the Father for God the Father's purposes and will. And so as one sin, his motivation, his aim is not his own personal glory, but to bring glory to God. And I want you to notice how different this is than everyone else in the story. In the previous chapter, many of his disciples left him because what he taught didn't sit well with them personally. Start at John 7, his brothers mock him for losing the big crowds and tell him if he wants to be famous, he needs to go make a name for himself in the bigger cities. Everyone at the festival is talking about him, but not one person is going to say anything publicly about them because they're looking out for themselves and trying to protect themselves. The Jewish leaders see him as a threat to their own rule and their own authority and their own power. And so it's in their own self-interest to try and kill him. And so everyone else in this story is living by their own minds. They're all living by their own schedule. They're all living within their own selfish motivations and they're living within their own power. And that is the reason why they just simply can't figure Jesus out. That's why he remains so confusing to them because he wants nothing to do with that kind of living. And so his self-proclaimed disciples just don't understand his teaching. His brothers don't understand his motivations. The crowds can't figure out why and when he teaches when he does at the festival. And the Jewish leaders are just so confused and threatened. They just want to get rid of him. Because he's light in the darkness. Because he is in the world and not from the world. And so his life, his purpose, his motivation simply did not fit in here. And they still don't. But can we all at least just be honest enough with ourselves this morning to see and admit that his motivations and his purposes in his life are better than ours? Because how did he keep going? I mean, think about it. Every single time he teaches, people desert him and turn on him. Every time he taught, he faced extreme opposition. They called him a deceiver. They claimed he's evil. They labeled him as the devil himself. They resisted him in any way. Yet he just kept teaching Every time he walked into Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders tried to plot and come up with a way to kill him, yet he just kept going. Those men he chose, right, the ones that he invested in the most, the ones he poured into, the ones he spent the most time with, he knew all along that they would all fall away, that Peter would disown him, that Judas would betray him, yet he just kept investing in them. He just kept training them, just kept showing them the truth. Because you see the transfer from someone living for themselves to living as one who has been sent, opened up for Jesus a treasure trove of strength and power that we cannot find in ourselves. Living as one sent gave him perspective. Because now the struggles had meaning. There was no trial, there was no adversity that God the Father would not use to bring good and advance his cause of bringing glory to the Father. So the reality and presence of struggle did not demotivate Jesus because even those God could use. Living as somebody who's been sent gave him power. How could this man get such amazing learning without being taught? Jesus' answered, I received it. I was given it by the one who sent me. And so his teachings and his miracles and the boldness he displayed were all evidence of God the Father's hand on his life. And living as one sent gave Jesus endurance it didn't matter the distractors. It didn't matter how many attacks. It didn't matter the piling up of stress. It didn't matter how many seeming losses came back to back to back to back. He just kept going. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus brings those inner group of disciples close to him. And he tells them, guys, it's time to go to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to be handed over to religious leaders. I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed. And the next verse tells us in Luke 9 that he, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was waiting for him, and yet he remained, he remained firm in his resolve to keep going and go there. You ever need that in life? Something that gives you endurance, something that, that just gets you out of bed even, something that keeps you climbing up the mountain, something that gives you the strength to go through the day. And the story is not over. It gets better. In Jesus chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and I want you to hear what he prayed. This is Jesus in John 17 praying for disciples, and he prayed, they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. So, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, and as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I want you to see the distinctions that Jesus is making there, because this Way of life, living as one who is sent. Jesus never saw it as his mission alone. And so, on the night before he goes across, he prays for his disciples. He mentions, number one, that they are no longer of this world. Does that remind you of someone else who wasn't from this world? He then prays that they will be sanctified by God's word that is given to him. They remind you of somebody else whose teaching, whose words he received from God. And then Jesus prays that he's sending them into the world. Does that remind you of someone else who's been sent? So here's the reality. We we spent the last three weeks here looking at John 14, 6, and the thrust of that verse is to get you to believe in Jesus, because to believe in Jesus means salvation, right? It means that your sins are forgiven, and you're granted eternal life forever with him. It is huge. It's the biggest deal. But it's not where your journey is to end. You're not called to be a believer. The church was not commissioned by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go and make believers of all nations. It was commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, to believe in Jesus is salvation. To follow Jesus is to surrender control over your life. To become a disciple of Jesus is to imitate him. To be a disciple is to live as one sent is to live life for Jesus' glory and Jesus' glory alone, and this is the best way to live. Because living as one sent gives you the exact same benefits that it gave Jesus. So the option lies before us. Do you want to live like everyone else in the story? You want to live by your own plans and by your own calendar and by your own strength and your own purpose and your own power and your own motivations. Or you want to live as someone who's been sent to bring glory to Jesus in all that you do and therefore open yourself up to God's power in your life. When is the last time you gave him complete control over your schedule? Or for you, will any time do When's the last time that you gave him complete control over your wallet? When's the last time that you served his kingdom at the cost of your own plans and your own wishes and your own convenience? When you face a decision, do you, do you run to him in prayer and search his word for direction? Or are you just trying to figure it out on your own? All right, the steadfast belief of Jesus is that he can do more and accomplish more through you than you ever can on your own. And we'd be qu- crazy to question him on that. So, to live for his glory, to live life giving him control, is to open ourselves up to the power of heaven working in and through us. And it also gives us Jesus' perspective. Because the way that Jesus saw the stress, the way that Jesus saw struggles and trials and burdens of this life is different than we often do. We have in Jesus a high priest who walked everywhere that we walked, who faced everything that we faced, and his strength was found in living for a purpose greater than himself. It allowed him to see the potential of good in everything. It gave him the absolute confidence that there's nothing that came along his way that his father would not use. When is the last time you saw your struggle as a means of growth? When's the last time that you took the time to peer through the darkness of your reality to the promise that he is still at work? See, it was the perspective that gave Jesus his endurance. It's why he just kept going everything was against him, when everyone was turning on him, when it was all seemingly falling down around him, he just kept pursuing the glory of God. And I'm telling you that endurance is available for you. Corinne and I have two daughters, Hattie who's eight and Jim who's five. We also have twin girls on the way. Pray for me, please. This past Wednesday night, we were all here for family night, and Corinne took the girls home, I had to stay and lock up and turn off lights, and, and this particular night before I got home, bedtime just didn't go well. It just, it just didn't go well, right? There's a lot of protesting, a lot of stalling, a lot of complaining. Maybe your kids are perfect, all right, but ours aren't, and, and so apparently right before I get home, right before I walk in the door, mama, mama just had enough, right? And so she told the girls, she said, listen, this just simply has to stop, and it definitely has to stop before the twins get here, because when the twins are here, we're going to have two babies to put down. And so what we need is we need our older girls to just be able to go to bed well. Right? well then I get home. I walk in all optimistic in my ignorance, having no clue to the train wreck that preceded my arrival. Right? I just come strolling in the room like nothing's wrong, but it doesn't take long to I assess the situation and realize this has not gone well. Right? So I'm going to grab control of the situation. Dad's going to save the day. And so I go ahead and invite Corinne, to go take a breather. And I shut the girl's door and I sit down with them. And here's my plan. I'm just going to talk reason to them. Some of you are laughing because you know if you have little girls, this is the dumbest possible strategy. Right? So I try to calmly ask them to just tell me what happened. Like what unfolded here? What you did to, to just stress mama out? How, why are you in trouble? And I really didn't like the answers I was getting. They just weren't sitting well with me. So I finally said, you know what, girls, unbeknownst to what, what Corinne said to him, I said, I know it's late, but this can't keep happening. And then I said it, right? I said, this has got to stop before the twins get here, because we're going to have two babies that we have to put down to sleep every night, and so I need my big girls to be able to go to sleep. And at that moment, our five-year-old, Gemma, just screamed, oh, my goodness, mama already said that, and I can't hear it again. <laughs> See, this happens to Gemma sometimes, Right? For instance, every now and then, she would just want to eat dinner or play with a toy, and we'll just tell her that in order to do that, in order to do the thing you want to do, you, you've got to clean up that mess you made first. And there are times that she complies really quickly, and other times she's just not feeling it. Right? And so instead of fighting me on it, instead of talking back, this is her strategy, she just gets overwhelmed by the weight of these expectations and just crumbles to the floor. Right, she just lays out completely, and when I tell her again, by the way, you need to clean up, laying sprawled out on the floor, she'll just desperately cry out, but my body won't let me do it. Now, let me ask you, can you ever relate to Gemma? I mean, I certainly can. Right, there have been days, some recently, this, some recently for me, there was a day this week I just looked at Corinne and said, I just don't know if I can do it today. I mean, she'd asked me to take out the trash, and the cubs were on, and I was already, my feet were already sprawled up in the cap. That's not the context of that, all right? That wasn't really, that, that what happened was I knew, right? I knew that morning that to get up and take the step out that door, I was walking headfirst into some really heavy and weighty things. I just didn't know if I was up for it. And I, I didn't know, I don't know if the timing is coincidental, if there's spiritual warfare player combination of both, but it seems like for a lot of people in this church... For a lot of our people, the week after Easter this year brought a feeling of just being overwhelmed. Man, God's, God's at work here at FBM. We give him all the glory. Right? We, we've experienced some growth that's exciting. We've seen God bring people to faith in his son Jesus, which is everything that we're about. Some of those people who, who that members are members, are new believers, are people that our members have been praying for for literally years. So we've seen God bring great victories and answers to prayer in other people's lives as well, and yet at the same time, we, we've seen people walk through the valley of some of the worst things you can face. Seen really horrible diagnoses. Watched families struggle through things that they never would have seen coming, and we felt—we just feel the weight of living in this sinful world. And I know—I don't know all of you who are, but I know many of you have walked into this room today just feeling overwhelmed. There's some, some of you are overwhelmed today because there's this situation at work that just isn't resolving itself, right? There are others who are facing the health scare. Others who are who just, who just in the midst of marital issues. Some of you, It's just the burdens of life, right? Some of you feel this intense burden for your children. Others of you caring for elderly parents. Those of you who are worried about a sibling or, or those of you who feel just this great weight out of, out of a deep concern for a friend. And I guess what I want you to know this morning is that Jesus felt it. That Jesus carried that burden more than we ever have or will. And so when he says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest for your souls, he means it. And he will actually pick your head up and allow you to see your struggles in a new light. And he will say to you, my child, I am still working. I still have this. I have not forgotten you. I have not removed my hands from the situation in your life. I'm still here. I'm still good. So get up and keep going and fight the good fight and do not grow weary of doing good. And if you live for Jesus, if you live for his glory, you will find a strength and a purpose and an endurance that is simply beyond you and outside of you. Man I'm I'm constantly impressed by this church. I'm impressed by all of you. By right, the talents that you have, your your ingenuity, your work ethic, your resourcefulness, your abilities. Y'all you are gifted people. In fact, I'm a little intimidated around you. But listen, even with all of that, the last thing that I want for you as your pastor is for you to experience a life on this earth that is lived entirely in your own power. A life that's lived entirely by your own resources and in your own strength and by your own endurance because you have been sent. You were created by a holy, awesome, loving God and you were made in his image. And Acts 17 tells us that you were placed when and where he wanted to place you. And he designed you with gifts and abilities but those gifts and abilities are maximized to their fullest potential when you use them for his purposes and his glory and not your own. So he sent you to the people who are in your life. He sent you to the job that you have right now. He has sent you to your school. He has sent you to your neighborhood. He has sent you to where you are and who you are around. And he calls you in response to that to live for him and his purposes and his glory. So will you believe that? Will you believe first in Jesus for salvation and then believe that he actually does have a greater vision for your life than anything that you can come up with on your own? Will you cede control to him? Will you cede your life to him? Will you become not just a believer, not just a follower, but a disciple? Will you live for his glory? Let's pray. Father, we remain thankful for the amazing future that you've purchased for us in Jesus. A future that will not end, a future that is free from struggle and free from strife and free from grief grief and loss and pain and death. But God, that is simply not our reality today. God, we are in this world and if we belong to you, we know that we are not of this world. We are not from this world. You have sent us here. And so God, first and foremost, as always, we pray for any in this room who have not believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, for, for, the, for the gift of new life in you, that today would be the day. But God, for those in our midst who are facing a struggle, for those in our midst who are, who are holding on to too much control, for those in our midst who are just trying to grab too many things and live just by their own power and their own resources. Lord, may, may May we be a church that surrenders that to you this morning. May we lay our motivations before you and trade them in for living for Jesus' glory and Jesus' glory alone. And God, we pray all this in his powerful name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.